You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. There was added urgency to Tony's risk assessment now. As if it wasn't enough to have Vance on the loose, he needed to free himself up so he could approach his new undercover project with a clear head. And he was going to have to find somewhere else to work. It would be hard to keep his progress secret from the person whose office he had taken over, especially when that person was as acute as Carol Jordan. I believe Vance suffers from narcissistic personality disorder. The key to any understanding of Vance is his need to be in control. He wants an environment where he is in charge. It's always all about him. He needs to manipulate the individuals around him and to be in charge of the way events unfold. Some controlling personalities use threats and fear to keep people in line. Vance uses charisma to blind them to what he's really about. That's not just because it's easier to maintain, it's also because he needs their adoration. He needs to have people look up to him. It's what his whole life was about before he went to prison, and I imagine it shaped his life behind bars. He has enormous self-discipline, which dates back to his adolescence. He was desperate to carve a niche for himself where people would respect and admire him. His mother largely ignored him and his father treated him with contempt. He didn't like the way they made him feel and he was determined to make the world take notice of him. Probably the only thing that kept him from violent criminality in his teenage years was the discovery of his athletic talent. Once that had been identified, it offered him an avenue to the sort of adulation he wanted to experience. Val McDermott is a crime fiction writer with works including two short story collections, her work of nonfiction, A Suitable Job for a Woman, six Lindsay Gordon novels, six Kate Brannigan novels, and six standalone novels, and six novels featuring psychological profiler Tony Hill and DCI Carol Jordan. Her new novel featuring Hill and Jordan is The Retribution. Joining us is Lori King. Her new novel is The Pirate King. Thank you for joining me, Val and Lori. It's a pleasure to be here. Always happy to. Val, you have a, a long and really interesting writing career. You started out with Lindsay Gordon. Tell us a little bit about why you decided to write in the crime and fiction and mystery genre. The short answer really is that I became addicted to crime and mystery fiction at a very early age. Um, I used to spend a lot of time at my grandparents' house, and we were very sort of much a blue collar Scottish family. Books were a luxury, really, and they only had two books in the house. They had a copy of the Bible, which had very thin paper and very small print, and I was always terrified of tearing. And for some reason, they had a copy of Agatha Christie's Murder at the Vicarage. And so whenever I ran out of library books that I'd brought with me, I would reread The Murder at the Vicarage. And I think you know, vets will sometimes talk about how if you, if you put a dog, uh, a puppy rather, with, with a brood of cats, it'll grow up thinking it's a cat. And I think I grew up thinking that all adult books had to have dead bodies in them as a result of this early exposure to Agatha Christie. So I carried on. Uh, I, I found a way to get my hands on more Agatha Christie books and, and then started to read my way right through the mystery genre. And that became kind of my default reading alongside all the sort of the, the English literature I read. I always read crime fiction. You know, you, you started out writing a series fiction with Lindsay Gordon and Kate Brannigan. I'd like you to just talk a little bit about creating those characters and, you know, the times you were writing in and how those characters came out of your experience. The, the Kate Brannigan novels are, are 
<clears throat> I think, you know, have a very different tenor and tone than your, your more recent series featuring uh, Tony Hill and DCI Carol Jordan. Yeah, I think um, all of the series have their, their, their roots in, in where I was at the time and where society was at the time in a way. Um, when I first wrote the Lindsay Gordons, it was the, the first of the new wave of feminist crime writers, writers like Sarah Paretsky and Marsha Muller and Sue Grafton were coming out of America, and also lesbian private eye writers, writers like Barbara Wilson and Mary Wings, Catherine Lee Forrest. These books were, were suddenly appearing before me and actually opening up the possibility of writing a kind of crime fiction that seemed to me to resonate with my life and the lives of the women I knew in a way that traditional British crime fiction with its village mysteries and its police procedurals did not anymore. And so when, when I started writing the Lindsay Gordons, um, I figured that I should stick with that adage of, of write what you know. So I made her a journalist because I was a journalist and I knew what journalists do for a living and I knew what was possible and and. and what scope there was for, for following stories. Um, it also seemed to me that as a, as a journalist, you had an entree into all sorts of different worlds and all sorts of possibilities. Even then, I had figured out that you couldn't run an amateur sleuth forever without it starting to seem a little bit unlikely that all their friends were either dead or in jail. Because Miss Marple, you know, the Miss Marple books, however much she she investigates and, and places she goes, it's always, you know, with, with her own coterie of friends that she's she's hanging out. And all these people who are involved in crime, it's astonishing for this quiet village life. And yet Miss Marple never goes, dear me, I wonder what it is about me that causes this to happen. <laughs> so I thought with, with Lindsay, at least she had a valid reason for her to be in different places and, and, and experience different worlds. I originally planned to write a trilogy of the Lindsay Gordon books because I wasn't very sophisticated as a, as, a, as a writer of fiction at that point and the book I really wanted to write was the third one but I couldn't figure out how to get there without writing the first two. See, now I would know how to wrap it all up in one book um, but I didn't know that then so I started off writing those and so I knew after three books that I was going to want to do something different and at the time I was living and working in Manchester and... After the, the Thatcher era of, of the sort of drastic public service cuts and, and really the, the decimation of the north of England, which didn't vote Tory and therefore was not on Thatcher's radar except as someplace to kick now and again, um, the city was in a very poor economic state. Think, think Detroit. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. and, but what there was about Manchester was a real spirit, a real determination that we were not going to be sucked under. And so in the 90s, there was a real buzz about the city. It was a, it was a city trying to find a, a, a new future, a different future. And there was like, you know, there was football, there was music, and a small enough city for those worlds to intersect, for all these different worlds to come together. And it seemed to me that writing a private eye novel would give me the scope also to kind of write about the city that I was living in that, that was exciting to be in, that also opened up lots of possibilities for story. And I suppose that's what I'm always looking for. I'm always looking for possibilities of story because um, that's where it all starts for me. Writing a book always starts with a story that's demanding to be told. I think that's really an interesting and <clears throat> that approach. That's what makes your, your book so powerful. It, one of the things I, I like about um, the, the Brannigan books have a different voice uh, it's you. You seem to be having a lot of fun with those books. So I, I don't. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that's that. Of course, is very much within the the, the private eye tradition that mm -hmm. comes out of American culture. Um, it's you know sort of the tradition tradition of Raymond Chandler that has been picked up by many writers over the years. That sort of wisecracking style, that first person style. 
I mean, and the lovely thing about it is that, you know, your detective gets to come out with those snappy one-liners at the time. For most of us, we can only think of the snappy one-liner three days later in the shower. But your detective has the power to, like, you know, summon it up on the spot and deliver it and smack them between the eyes with it. And that's fun. It's fun to write. It's 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 uh, it's it's nice to have a bit of, of a bit of lightness sometimes, you know, to, to to leaven the lump. And I think um, I think it's also one of these aspects of, of Scottish crime writing that's very strong. That that um, in in Scotland we, we we tend to have this this black humour that invests our lives. I mean, it's all those years of oppressed misery. You know, three hundred years of occupation by a foreign power would be the English. Um, <laughs> and we've had to develop a sense of humour because if you didn't laugh, you'd cry. And so if, I think if you look at Scottish crime fiction, no matter how noir it becomes, there's always, there's always humour in there, there's always a gag, there's always finding a way to laugh at yourselves. Well, <clears throat> talk a little bit about developing that voice of Kate Brannigan, that first-person voice, because your Tony Hill, uh, Carol Jordan novels are not, not first-person. So... Mm-hmm. Um, Talk about, you know, choosing that and going back and forth. The thing about the Private Eye novel is, is that it does have this tradition of writing in the first person. So when, after I'd written the Lindsay Gordons, which are third person but with pretty much a single viewpoint, mm-hmm. um, I knew that I wanted to push myself as a writer. For me, one of the things about being a writer is always challenging yourself, always wanting to go further, always wanting to do something different. You know, I didn't want to write the same novel 25 times. I wanted to write different things and, and challenge myself. So um, the thing about writing the Kate Brannigans was, was moving into a different person's shoes, but also writing in a very different style. With first person, um, you also impose quite severe narrative constraints on yourself because the reader knows everything the detective knows when she knows it but you only know what the detective knows and you only see the world through her eyes. And you have, it's, it, what you have to do is try and construct the story in such a way that the reader thinks they're figuring out stuff ahead of the detective. So you give them the information and let them think that they're working it out ahead of the detective. They're one step further down the road than you are. Um, but all the time, you've got to keep the story moving forward. And it's a real struggle sometimes to avoid those kind of scenes where... Um, the detective uncovers something and doesn't tell the reader. You know, it's like, now I understood the truth. <laughs> and as a reader, you're going, well, yeah, and so share it with us. <laughs> so so that's one of the, 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 the constraints and demands on it. And you're always very much, as a writer, you're right in that first person. You're right, you're very, right up close and personal with, with the character. Um, and sometimes that can be quite wearing. And I realised after I, I quit my day job in 91 that I couldn't actually write two Kate Brannigan books back to back because the the sort of intensity, if you like, the, the sort of being inside that head, I couldn't do it back two books back to back. I wanted a break. I wanted to be someplace else rather than in that head and, and, and looking at the world through her eyes. And so that's when I started um, thinking about the, the first Tony Hill and Carol Jordan novel um, and wanting to do something that was quite different and took me like, really completely away from being inside somebody else's head so very directly. You know, uh, when you were talking about the, the constraints of story on a first-person narrator, <clears throat> actually, I'd never thought about that. And, and Laurie, you write in the first person, too. Your Mary Russell shows up in the first person. So maybe both of you could talk about that because that, that really does change fundamentally the kind of story you can tell and I'm wondering how much 
when you're when you're out there in the abstract thinking about a story, how much you have to okay say now I've got I've got this whole long story with all these characters that these things happen in. Now I have to suck it in and have to figure out how I can get this single person to thread through all those events, or whether are you just kind of launch forward and follow the thread all the way through and hope that uh, the the story ends up making some sense. Well, I think that when you when you tackle a, a larger book, um, which some of the, the Russells are my um, first-person series, they are presented as her memoirs. Mm -hmm. And as you begin to tackle a more complicated plot with more people in it, it becomes increasingly difficult to write in strictly first-person. So I do actually have the, the last couple of books in this have had quite a few places where there's multiple viewpoints. Mm -hmm as if somebody gave her a description of what they were doing. It becomes so tedious to have, if you have some character who's been off the stage and then has to come back and give that information, it's much more interesting as a reader to just step out of the first person. Mm -hmm. And I found a number, of, uh, a number of writers are doing this as their writing matures and they realize that they're working within the constraints of first person. Um, there's various ways of getting out of it. Sometimes you will step out and do a third-person book. Lee Child has done this with the Jack Reacher books. Sometimes they're, you know, mostly they're third-person, third but there's been a couple with first-person because he felt that the story worked better that way. And, and I think that when you're, you know, there's, there's also this sort of progression. I, I, Val, I think you're a little unusual in this in, in in many ways, you are unusual. <laughs> but uh, it's very common for beginning writers to do first person because it, it feels easier to put yourself in the shoes of the person acting, whether it's a PI novel or um, something much cozier, um, without realizing these th the problems that you're getting into with first person. Um, there's, there's always the, the tricky bit of, as Val says, how to make the reader feel that they're outthinking the person that whose eyes they're looking through. Um, I came across this with one of my books in that the main character, Russell, is an unreliable narrator. You can't trust what she remembers because this was during a difficult time that she's remembering. And and so you you have to present someone else's viewpoint in there mm. to balance it. So. Yeah, and I, I certainly found with, with the Kate Baring is I didn't want to move down the first person, third person trajectory. Um, I thought if I'm going to write these books, I want to keep them very much in the first person because as well as being the story of, of the crimes that she solves, they're the story of her life, they're the story also of, of what happened to Manchester through the 1990s, they're a kind of social history. And I felt that if I stepped outside of it, I would lose that perspective on, on how things are changing and what mm. they were like. Um, and I'm also very conscious that there are only certain kinds of story that can be told, both in the first person and by the private eye novel. Mm -hmm. And for me, um, there were stories that I needed to tell, stories that were exciting me, stories that were in my head that wouldn't fit either in the context of a private eye novel or in the context of a first person, solely first person narrative. Um, you know, when I had the idea for The Mermaid Singing, which is the first Tony Hill and Carol Jordan novel, I knew from the very beginning that this could not be a Lindsay Gordon or a Kate Brannigan book because investigative journalists and private eyes don't solve serial murders. Um, and again, but 
when I had the idea for that book, I had to find a structure, and that book actually is told in two voices. Part of the book is in first person, and part of the book's in third person. It's also two different time sequences. The first person narrative begins before the first murder, and the third person narrative doesn't begin until the fourth murder. So the course of the book, as, as well as alternating between the first person and the third person, you've got a timeline that's coming. So one timeline starts way before the other, but they both converge. And so that was, so all these things that, 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 that sound tremendously complicated, they're the kind of technical problems that are, are great fun to resolve. They make you tear your hair out in the middle of the night. Sometimes they take years to resolve. I've had books that, where I've had the, the idea for the book and then uh, the story has taken shape but I have not been able to find a structure to tell the story for a decade or more. How do you keep those those stories in focus and fret and keep them fresh and exciting for you as a writer to come back to and tell it? I mean, don't you after a after 10 years don't you think, oh, wow. No, well, it's, it's, it, it, if it's a good enough story, if it's a mm. strong enough story, it keeps itself alive. Mm. I mean, all, all over the years, I must have lost dozens of stories that seemed like really interesting at the time, but weren't interesting enough to, to hold my attention. But things that stay in your head that you keep coming back to, those are the ones you know you've got to stick with. And that, that eventually, there will come a point where your, your writerly skills will be able to deal with it or something will change in the outside world that gives you the key to how to tell the story. For example, my, my previous book, Trick of the Dark, I had the first idea for Nominated for a couple of awards. Yes. <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you very much. Um, but it's, uh, it's a book that's set in, in Oxford where I was an undergraduate. I had the first idea for the, the story uh, about probably about 14 years ago. And I was, uh, I was sitting in, in the grounds of my old college at St. Hilda's College, Oxford, um, where they have a mystery convention every summer, a mystery conference. And I'd, I just went out to sit in the garden for a while to take the sun. And a wedding party arrived, because they were having a wedding in a different part of the grounds. And I recognised the mother of the bride as someone who had taught me when I was an undergraduate many years before. And then I made the connection that if she was who she was, which she obviously was. Then the bride was one of her kids who I had babysat for many, many years ago. Now, for most people, that would just be a serendipitous moment. But because I have a nasty, devious, twisted mind, <laughs> I immediately set about thinking, well, what might happen here? What, what, what possible history could there be between two people in this sort of situation that might lead to something odd or strange or interesting in the present. So I was just sitting there on the riverbank mulling things over, thinking about the possibilities. And, you know, by the end of the day, it seemed clear to me that what was going to happen was that the bridegroom would be dead by bedtime. And so <laughs> I, had, I had the basic idea for the story. Uh, by the end of the weekend, I had this, this overarching notion of a, of a character within the book um, about whom we're never certain until the last page. We don't know if she's a serial-killing psychopath or someone around whom unfortunate things happen. And I had these two ideas, and I knew how they could fit together, but I couldn't come up with a structure. For some reason, this, this character who we don't know about, whether she's a, a, a serial killer or not, um, she had to reveal her past. She had to reveal her version of her past to the reader. Um, we also had to understand that she was an unreliable narrator, and I could not figure out how to do this. I couldn't think of any reason why she should possibly be exposing herself in this way to, to a scrutiny. And what broke the logjam for me was the rise of the misery memoir, 
Suddenly, everywhere you turn, somebody was writing a book about their completely dreadful and utterly miserable childhood and how they'd overcome these terrible obstacles to be this wonderful person that they were today. And I thought, she is exactly the kind of ego that would do that. And that gave me the key. But I had waited a dozen years for that key to come along. Um, and then suddenly everything made sense and the book was possible. But it had always stayed in my head because the story interested me. I wanted to, to develop these characters and tell the story. Do you find that? I think it's, it's interesting how new writers very often will keep notebooks of ideas and are worried that if they, if they don't write down an idea or a possible plot twist, that they will forever lose it and some key element of their entire writing future will be lost. To my mind, if if it is a vital enough idea, you cannot get rid of it. It's, it's something that you don't need to write down. It's there. It bugs you for 10 years or however many, many it takes. Um, that the, it makes an itch in the brain that you just can't stop scratching until you find a way to fit it into a story. Yeah, you don't have to be writing it down because, it, as you say, it won't leave you alone. I mean, in the stages before I'm ready to write a book, the only thing that I ever tend to write down is if there's some technical element of the idea where I've done some research, where I've, where I've been a place which has, has given me information that I need, I know that I'm going to need if I ever develop this book, I'll write down the technical stuff. So I wrote one, one of the Tony Hill and Carol Jordan books takes place on the, the waterways of Europe, the, the River Rhine and, and various canals and things like that. And I spent two weeks just wandering around northern Europe looking at barges and riding on boats and, and looking at locks and seeing how all these things worked. And I needed to make notes of things like how long is a Rhine ship you know, and how many can you get in a lock at a time. So those technical things yeah. I make a note of, but, but the, the actual story ideas and the plot twist and all that, no, because they're, they're there and if they're strong enough, they'll stay with you. You know, reading your books, you have your books, uh, Al, have such a wonderful sense of place. I love the way you just evoke the place. It's very, they're all, they're, it's really atmospheric. It just kind of rises up out of the ground, and it seems that it has a lot to do with the prose and a lot to do with the way your characters perceive the place. And I'm wondering if, when you're in, like, seeing the locks, are you? somehow recording that in some part of your brain as the vision of a character? Yeah, I think when, you're, when, you're, when you are in a, in a specific location that you know you're going to use um, or you're thinking about using, I think you do have to start, start think about it in terms of how someone else would see it, how the character would see it, um, and step outside your own, your own interpretation of, of the landscape or the cityscape and see it through the eyes of somebody else, read it differently. Um, I, I think the, the best crime fiction does have this strong sense of place. I mean, the people we, whose, whose, whose works have become classic, like Chandler's Los Angeles, Sherlock Holmes's London, those are things that really stay with us. And I mean, I know I've visited cities over the years, having read books that were set there, and felt as if I knew them already, mm -hmm. you know, um, because of the books that I had read. And I think it's one of those little tricks that crime writers play because really, at, at the bottom, we all know that murders are not solved the way we write about them. Crimes are not solved in, in, in the methodology we, we present to the reader. To read a crime novel is to, to absolutely decide that you will come along on this journey of suspending your disbelief. 
But the writer has to, to give you good reasons for that and, and has to, if you like, stay within the, the capsule of, of, of suspended belief. And one of the ways I think we do this is, is to use place as a real anchor. And if you write vividly about place, especially if it's a real place, people who have been there recognise it and they go like, oh yeah, I've driven down that road or I've sat there and looked at that view of the ocean or I've been in that cafe and immediately they buy into everything else you're telling them. It's as if she's telling me the truth about Santa Cruz. She's telling me the truth about Berlin. She must be telling me the truth about everything else. And you also have to write about it, though, in such a way that someone who has never been to those cities will also find a correlation to the city they live in. So you write about a district, uh, maybe the, the district where the university is, and you have to, to make it... Um, universal in some way. You have to, to make it so that someone who's never been to Berlin but knows a city where there's a university and there's a sort of artistic life and they go, oh yeah, that's just like such and such a part of this town that I know. So you have to find this balance between making it real and, and, and also making it co correlate to what people understand. And then the third level <laughs> is the fictitious city because if, you, um, if you're writing a crime novel, inevitably there will be bodies and there will be crime. And um, people get inordinately cross if you put dead bodies in their real places, you know? Um, and I think if you're, if you're writing about a, a nightclub where drug dealing is taking place, you'd be very foolish to name a real nightclub, you know, because the, the guys with the baseball bats will come around and knock on your door on a Sunday morning when you least expect it. So you have to know the city, the real city, well enough to put fictitious buildings or fictitious locations in the city in a credible way. You know, there's no point in putting a nightclub in a leafy green suburb, for example. So you've got all these things going on as a way of tricking the reader into coming with you on this journey of suspended disbelief. Do you ever write about places that you haven't spent time in? No. I don't, I don't write about places I've never been. Sometimes I write about places where I've not spent a great deal of time, but I've, just, I've been there enough to get a sense of the place, a feel for the place. Uh, and then you can go back and look at guidebooks and maps and photographs. But I have to have... I, I don't think I've ever written about somewhere I've never, ever been, not in any substantive way. You know, it's one thing I... A really good book for me, I can go back and visit the places and the scenes in that book as if it were a vacation I took. That's from what is for me to make the, the best books. They, they become uh, analogous almost to memories if, you, if it reads well enough and reads strong enough. I think that's true. I mean, I think sometimes I, my experience as a reader, you know, certainly you go to a place sometimes and that's, it's that thing you think you've been there before um, because you've read about it and the, the writer's summoned it up so vividly. And you know, that's what we're all trying to do. We're trying to make a, a movie, if you like, for the, for the reader in their head so that they feel part of the book, that they, they're drawn into it and they have their own world of the book. One of the uh, bookstores in Scottsdale, um, The Poison Pen, has a whole section of books geared towards people who are traveling to certain parts of the world. So, you know, if you're going to Venice, there's Don and Leon and Michael Dibden. <laughs> <laughs> Now, uh, you know, you talked about uh, Chandler's L.A., and, and one thing that strikes me about uh, strong crime novels is they have strong social themes. Uh, I mean, that just seems to be um, something that really grabs uh, uh, crime writers' attention. It certainly grabs yours, and, and in terms of, especially in terms of the life of your characters. In The Retribution, your latest novel, we, we see a lot of uh, kind of social themes, um, in, especially in the tension between um, some of the kind of the cruder male characters and 
the Carol Jordan's uh, M- MIT team, you know, uh, talk about integrating those kind of, you know, your the things that interest you personally and, you know, the social issues that interest you personally and actually affect you personally, and, and writing about those in a way that has veracity and has the kind of, you know, gets tells readers the things you want to without, while still making it an interesting story. Yeah. I never start a book with the idea of, of, of writing about issues or themes. Um, what what I write comes out of, I suppose, who I am and, and my interest in, in the things that go on around me, my, my relationship with the world. Um, so inevitably I write about the world in a way that I deal with the things that interest me. Um, but I think the crime novel has become the, 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 the form of literature that does deal most directly with social criticism, with social history. And I think part of the reason for that um, is that the, the crime novel allows you to explore lots of different strata of society without there being any sort of stretching of, of, of verisimilitude. Because you have, you have the victim and their social background and their world. You have the police or the investigator who generally has a different background, different social world, different environment, different set of priorities, different set of beliefs. You've got witnesses who can come from another completely different environment with a different set of beliefs, a different set of experiences. You've got the friends and family of the victim. So you've got all these different universes, if you like, that you can pull together. So you can write about the way that different groups in society interact in a way that, that for me, is interesting as a writer because it, it creates all sorts of tensions and all sorts of possibilities. Um, and all sorts of, of pressures and, and, and um, experiences that, that, that can impact on how the characters behave and interact. So I think, I, I, for me, it, it, it becomes an, an area of great fascination as a writer. You can draw all this stuff in. It used to be the literary novel that did that. It was, you know, your Charles Dickens and your George Eliot who did the sort of, like, wide expanse of society and, and drew on every aspect of, of society's worlds to write about the world they lived in. But it seems to me that increasingly in the, the latter part of the 20th century, a lot of literary fiction withdrew from that obligation and became more interested in, in the academy than it did with the reader um, and ceased really to, to write with any realism about, about society. At a time when the crime novel was becoming, uh, I think, a much a much stronger genre, and, and it was drawing to it much, much more interesting writers, writers who were interested in writing good prose, telling good stories. They weren't just writing pulp, they weren't just writing throwaway novels, they were actually writing stuff that, that was well-written and incisive and actually shone a light on the society that we live in. So I think with the, those two trends came together, um, the literary novel abdicating its interest in social justice and all of those things, at a time when the crime novel really really found its feet and expanded hugely um, has, has led it to, to, to great possibilities and I think right now we've got better crime fiction than we've ever had, a greater range um, and some fantastic writers writing at the top of their game. And, and you know Laurie, it interests me that in your historical crime novels, and, and I'm thinking of Touchstone and The Game, I mean those novels very easily, even though they adhere to the the um, 
historical context, they really speak strongly to uh, political events and social events that are happening right now. And I think that's really uh, one of the things that, that interests me about you know crime fiction is that the ability to do that with such facility. It is interesting that you can create a, um, a, a crime novel that is historical because as soon as you you step out of the current time, you, you know, theoretically, this all happened a long time ago, and why is there any tension left in there? But as a, as a person who has written an awful lot in historical um, periods, most of the 20s, for the last few years, it's fascinating how you can take that time and use it as a mirror instead. So that, as you say, Touchstone, Touchstone's my 9-11 book. It's about terrorism. Why do people become terrorists? Um, and um, the game is about what's going on in, uh, <laughs> in the Hindu Kush in Afghanistan. Why do we have any clue that we can get in there and get out again when nobody else could manage to? Um, Oh, Jerusalem is about the decisions made in the 20s that we are living with today. And all of these different things, um, I find a fascinating way as a writer to address contemporary issues and problems. Um, looking at, for example, the way that soldiers were treated in the Great War and the number of them who were lined up and shot for desertion um, because of shell shock. At the one hand, you're talking about what went on in the teens and 20s. On the other hand, you're talking about now and what's going on in how we treat um, soldiers who have PTSD. Um, so, the, yeah, yeah, it's, it's very interesting. And as Val said, you don't necessarily start out a book with the idea of writing to a theme because I think that's one way to guarantee your book falling flat. If you are writing in order to convince people of something, all you end up with is, is a story that smells of the soapbox, and that doesn't help help what you're trying to do. But to realize as you're going through that this is part of what you are telling, you know, the story has this theme running through it, um, is is exciting to discover that as you're writing. Yeah. And I think I think crime writers do have a very strong sense of connectedness to the here and now. Um, and, and you you know, you can use the historical crime novel very much as a mirror on the present day. But present day throws up issues, I think, for us that we, we also have to deal with. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, living in the UK at the moment, I'm intensely conscious of the inquiry that's going on into the practices of the tabloid press and the use of private investigators to hack into people's phone messages and to hack into their emails. And I mean, when I was a journalist, um, you know, the notion of using a private eye for this stuff wouldn't even have occurred to us. We did our own investigations. We did all that stuff by ourselves. But now in the UK, I mean, you look at, you look at what's happened, and I don't see how a crime writer starting a series now in the UK could possibly make a private eye the hero, as things have been revealed over the last few months. It's almost impossible to imagine how you could do that, because they, the whole profession has become so tainted by the activities 
of a few. And so, you know, for, for uh, a crime writer in, in, in the UK now thinking about writing a private eye series, it's like, you can't do that in the present day. You'd have to set that 20 years ago or 50 years ago because it's impossible to conceive of doing it now. So instead of the sleaze being on the outside and the PI being the one noble figure in sight, yeah. it's now... Yeah. They are in That's the country of sleaze. Yeah, it's down these mean streets a man must go who is as sleazy as it gets. <laughs> <laughs> that it sounds like a man after my own heart. <laughs> uh, you know, Val, one of the things that makes your work so convincing is your understanding of psychology. And what's nice is that uh, you do so in a, in a manner of, you know, you just show us, you don't tell us. And, and so I'd like you to talk about, it does, don't you get kind of disturbed? I mean, <laughs> don't you sometimes sit there when you're writing, like, in this book from the perspective uh, of Jacko, or, or, and there's other characters in this book that you write from their perspective, don't you think, there must be something wrong with me? Well, well, certainly her friends are. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Laurie. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, uh, well, I, I, I'm just fascinated by what makes people tick. And I think it's as interesting to explore what makes uh, a Carol Jordan or a Tony Hill or a, or a Paula McIntyre tick as it is to figure out what makes a Jack O'Vance tick. I'm interested, uh, with all my characters, in, in sort of, sitting inside their heads, sitting inside their shoes and thinking about about how the world they live in, how the events that happen to them affect them and how they feel about it. I suppose when you're writing about um, about psychopaths who do terrible, terrible things, um, to, to someone looking at it from the outside, that looks like a, a much different thing from writing about a protagonist who is fundamentally a decent, honest person with a set of, of ethical values. But it's not that different, really. I'm going into somebody else's head and it's the same kind of process and what it's about is figuring out why these people do the things they do and what motivates them and and making that kind of a reality for me but I know I'm making it all up I'm in control of all of this and when I'm actually writing it um are you do you really feel you're in control or do you just oh, are yeah. you are you you're, so your characters aren't telling you what to do of course they're not telling me what to do. <laughs> wouldn't stand for that. Um, no, I mean, it, it, I, I'm always slightly bemused when people say their characters take on a life of their own. No, they don't. I mean, if they did, it would be great. I could send them down to the supermarket while I'm busy working, but they don't take on a life of their own. They never. They can't do anything I don't let them do. They mm. can't do anything that doesn't come from my knowledge and understanding of, of the human condition, if you like. Um, you know, my characters come from years of... of watching people, listening to people, observing people, sucking it all into this great data set inside my head and then finding the bits of that data set that work with particular characters. Sort of like putting your hand in the, in the lucky bag and see what comes out sometimes, you know. Um, but at the heart of it, what I'm doing is I'm in control. I sit there, I decide what happens, I decide who does what to whom and when I'm not in the room, nothing happens. Um, and when I'm actually writing it, what I'm thinking primarily is 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 the balance of the, of, of of the book. Does this sentence work? Is that the right adjective? Should I end this chapter here? And you know, are, I will admit there are sort of it, it, it sounds a little macabre, but there are times when you know you write a sort of really dark scene and you look at it and you go, "That's terrific. That just so works." Um, <laughs> but uh, at its heart. It, I suppose my relationship with the book is very different from the readers. If I've done my job properly, 
when you're reading the book, it's like very much, it's in your face, you're, you're in it, it's immediate. You're going to rip through that in two or three days and it's, it's going to be sort of like at the front of your head. For me, it's, 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 it's months of work and every sentence has been sort of thought through and crafted and at the end of the day, I go into the house and behave like a normal person and cook the tea and you know, talk to my family and, and do the things that people do um, because it's, I'm in control, I know what's going to happen when you're reading it, you're not in control. You don't know what's going to happen next. You've gone, oh, my God, I've got to read this next chapter. I can't turn the light out yet. And all of those things, because I know how that feels, because I, I read, you know, I know how I know how good a good crime novel makes you feel. Um, and that's what I'm trying to recreate. So there's, you know what you're doing is mitigated by craft um, and the knowledge that, you know, I know what's happening next. Now, going from uh, the Kate Brannigan in the... Uh, Lindsay Gordon novels to the the Tony Hill and, and Carol Jordan novels, the serial killer novels are a very specific kind of subgenre within the mystery genre, and it's one that's popular. And you know, when you decided to to play in that space, what made you make that decision? Because it seems like it's a it's a pretty crowded space. Well, when I started, it wasn't. I mean, when I, when I wrote The Mermaid Singing in 1995, I don't think anybody else in the UK was doing this kind of book at all. Mm. Um, I can't think of anybody else who was writing books involving a profiler in the UK back then. So I was, I suppose, one of the first ones on the block with it in, in, in that sense. Um, and what interested me, I think, was the, was the idea of, 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 of using the psychology, of using this idea of the profiler. And it offered, I think, all sorts of possibilities for me as a writer. Partly because the way we do this thing in the UK is different from the way you do it in America. In America, you, you train up FBI officers in behavioral science and, and psychology and send them out into the field. So they are kind of cops who, who work with, with the cops, if you like. But in the UK, um, we have a different system. We, we use clinical psychologists or people who often work in secure mental hospitals with serial offenders of one type or another to come and work with the police to draw up profiles. And so immediately you have a kind of tension there between the outsider and the, 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 the police investigators. Um, the police never like outsiders coming into their world. They never like people who are not law enforcement personnel working on, on, on side with them, seeing all their data, seeing them with, you know, with the lid lifted up. And I thought right away there's, 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 t there's a creative tension there. And I thought if I made my cop a woman and my profiler a man, there was also all the kind of gender tensions that you'd have in there as well. So what interested me really from, from the get-go was, was not so much writing about the criminals, but writing about the crimes and the impact of the crimes on that wider social group, but also writing about how you investigate this very specific kind of crime. T.S. Eliot. <laughs> he did the police in different voices. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you're a fan, I guess. Yeah. Uh, why Why did you choose those those uh, clips for the titles and? Well, uh, the mermaid singing was was intended to be a standalone. So when I, I wrote that, I wasn't really thinking about continuing that motif. But um, the reason I called the book the mermaid singing was was because uh, right from the very beginning, it seemed to me that that one of the things that uh, that made Tony Hill so good at what he does is that he feels that, that he was on that kind of path, the same kind of path that a lot of serial killers started off on. Uh, and somewhere along the line, those, those two paths diverged, you know, two roads in a wood and all that. Um, but uh, I felt that, that, that in, in The Mermaid Singing, both the character of, of Tony Hill 
and the character of the killer had the had a, had a very similar relationship to the wider world. They they were both loners. They were both isolated from the normal discourse of the rest of us, and they both desperately wanted to be part of that world. They both desperately wanted a world of acceptance, a world of love, and it reminded me uh, of of the poem, uh, the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock, um, where you have this this, this character who's watches the women come and go speaking of Michelangelo and at the end of that poem there is I think a, a little passage that I think is one of the saddest saddest couplets in, in English literature um, I have heard the mermaids singing each to each I do not think they will sing to me and I just think that was heartbreaking but it's it's also where both Tony Hill and the killer stand in relation to the world around them and so it seemed to me to be the perfect title your, your latest novel, the, the Retribution, brings back one of uh, Tony Hill and Carol Jordan's old foes. Uh, talk about that decision. It's a, it's quite fun to see this as it unfolds. Did you? Was this something that you had in the back of your mind for many years? It it wasn't it wasn't something. It was very much at the back of my mind and not at the front of my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, Jack O'Vance, uh, the the killer at the heart of, of this book. Um, emerged in, in the book The Wire and the Blood. Uh, and that book was very much informed by a trip I made to America in 1994. I was researching my non-fiction book about real women private eyes. And at the time I was here, the O.J. Simpson trial was going on, and it was all anybody in America wanted to talk about. Whenever you walked into a room, people would go, so what's your take on O.J. Simpson? And uh, I thought it was, fa- it, was, it was fascinating to see the way that this had gripped people. And also one of the people that I, I was interviewing while I was over here was a private eye who had worked very closely in the investigation into the first allegations of paedophilia against Michael Jackson. And with these two stories sort of like running around in my head, it seemed to me that uh, there was a sense in which if you were famous enough, if you had enough celebrity, it was a kind of shield of invulnerability. You could get away with pretty much anything if you were famous enough. Um, and I thought... How interesting it would be to have the idea of, of, a, of a celebrity, someone who, in, in Jack O'Vance's case, had been a, a sports star, uh, then had a tragic accident and then became a television celebrity, uh, a, a man of great charm and charisma, who also happens to be a serial killer of teenage girls. How hard would it be to get anybody to believe that this man who comes into your living room every week and is charming and, and everybody loves him, to be, how could you get people to believe that this guy in his days off goes out and kills people and so that was the, was the, the kind of thrust of, of the wire and the blood uh, and it was, a, it was a battle of wits you know the traditional crime novel battle of wits between um, Jack O'Vance and Tony and Carol and eventually he is he's sent to jail um, and in terms of their antagonists over the years he's, he seemed to me to be the, the only one that had the, the subtlety and the wit and, and the intelligence to be brought back in something that wasn't just a retread of the first book so it was always that vaguely at the back of my mind that he was that he was possible, um, and recently I had been thinking about about um, where I would take Tony and Carol, how I could move them forward, uh, how I could uh, negotiate the the burden of their past with their future, um, and it seemed I was thinking about what what are Tony and what is Tony and Carol's role, what do they do, and. I thought, well, in a way, they are the agents of retribution. They're the agents of of our retribution, the state's retribution, if you like, the people's retribution. Someone commits terrible crimes, and Tony and Carol are the agents who bring them to book, 
who serve them up for punishment. They are the agents of the retribution. And I thought, how... Justice and vengeance. Yes, <laughs> both of those both. things. <laughs> both of those things. Because I think that's how we feel sometimes, you know, like that when, when a case turns out satisfactorily in, in the sense of how we feel about it. And I thought, how would it be if someone turned that retribution on them? How would it be if they became the focus of someone else's retribution? And that made it obvious that it, that it would be Jacko Vance. Um, and Jacko has that tremendous arrogance, that tremendous ego that, that thinks, that is actually outraged that these, these, these little people should have put him behind bars. How dare they? You know, and that might seem an extraordinary position today, but I, I'll, I'll give you just a little anecdote of something that happened to me recently. I was at, I was at a friend's funeral, um, and she was tabloid royalty in the UK. Um, we'd been friends for, for years and years since we were baby journalists. Um, but I found myself at one point in a car with a former editor of the News of the World and a former features editor of the News of the World and a current picture editor on our Fleet Street tabloid. And they were talking about the, the Leveson inquiry into the phone hacking business. And one of them said, uh, in, a, in tones of complete outrage, who do these people think they are to sit in judgment on us? Wow. And I thought, you know, if you can be so completely blind to the rest of the world as that, you know, Jack O'Van's thinking he's been badly done by is, is you know, no step at all, really. Um, so, so Jacko has been you know, inside for 12 years, getting increasingly cross. Um, and he emerges with, with his agenda for retribution. And because he's Jacko, it's not just a simple uh, retribution of, I'm going to go and kill these people who did bad things to me. It's much more about, how am I going to make these people suffer every day for the rest of their lives because of me? And that's where he starts from. That must be a creative challenge for you, and I, I'm curious, as a as a person who's completely sane and sits around, you know, spends a good deal of time writing. When you immerse yourself in that kind of uh, violent uh, a mindset, uh, is it fun? It seems like it might be well, kind of fun. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if fun is quite what I'd say. I think sometimes there are definitely moments of of. of of enjoyment when you, you, you know, when you structure something and, and you read it back and you think that so works, that's just right. Um, so so I, I would say it's more satisfaction rather than, than mm. fun. I, I don't, I mean, you're, you're making it sound like I take pleasure in, in uh, creating suffering for people and that, that really wouldn't be the case. Um, you know, I mean, the, 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 there were moments when I was planning this book, working on this book where, you know, I, I, I would I, I would sort of clutch my chest at what mm -hmm. was happening to Tony and Carol and think, you know, just that's so, that's, I'm, I'm, it's almost like I'm sorry, you know, I'm, I'm sorry I'm doing this, <laughs> but it's the demands of the story, we have to go there, you know. Um, and and, and you, 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 there were definitely moments where I, I really, you know, I, I, was, I was kind of moved by the place I was taking them to. One of the things I enjoy about these books is the, the sense of the team, and you have more than just two good characters. You have a whole team and, and over, you know, this uh, a series, you can build those characters up. A and I mean, do you have notebooks for each character? Do you have spreadsheets or a database? Or no, I've got, the, I've got the best copy editor in the world <laughs> who's been with me since the start of the series. I always reread before I start another Tony and Carol book as well. I go back and reread the previous books so that I'm kind of in the right place with it. Um, I like the idea of, 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 of um, working with, with a team, not, not the, sort of the solo superhero, as it were. 
And that was one of the things when I, when I started writing the Kate Brannigan books, I was very conscious of all the private eye novels. You know, you looked at these people's lives and you thought, God, that's bloody miserable. You know, you've got no friends, you've got no life, you've got no relationship. And I thought, this doesn't really reflect the kind of lives of, of people I know and, 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 and the lives of, of, of women in the 20th century, as it was back then when I started writing those. So I very deliberately gave Kate Brannigan an emotional life she has a boyfriend. She has close friends um, who who she pulls in to help her in investigations, and that was important to me that that she wasn't just this this isolated character of, of friendlessness and 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 incapable of actually making a relationship with anybody. So I I, I sort of moving forward through my books, I I tend towards um, bringing in sort of people who work together, um, and and. And because the sum is always greater, the sum of the, the, the sum of the parts is always greater than the, the individual bits. Now, um, it, I, I'm hoping there's going to be a fairly quick uh, follow-up to this one. <laughs> well, I'm writing a standalone at the moment, so this year's book will be a standalone, but next year's book will be another Tony and Carol. It's not, uh, it's not the end of the road, it's just the end of the chapter. Oh, good. <laughs> now, uh, you know, these are the... The Wire in the Blood was made into a TV series, and, and a pretty darn good one. It, mm -hmm. I'm wondering how you as a writer felt about that scene. How much involvement did you have in that, and how did you feel to see it happen? Well, I was very well served by Coastal Productions, who made the Wire in the Blood TV series and also adapted The Place of Execution, uh, one of my standalones for television. And what they, they, they did, they, they, they clearly uh, really liked the books. When they came to me first to talk about it, it was clear that, that they were coming to this from the point of view of we love these books and we want to make great television. Um, and so we, we sat down in the very early stages, we kind of identified the key elements that they had to be sure to retain, you know, the, the character of Tony Hill, the complexity of the storytelling, the kind of darkness of the, of the palette, if you like, of, of, of showing this. And with all these things in mind, um, my instru only instruction really was now go forth and make the best television you can with that. Uh, I think you have to you have to let go uh, your your adherence to every dot and comma and every twist and turn of your own storytelling when something's being adapted because the way you tell a story on television is very very different. Um, and so the next stage was was when they went to script. I saw every draft of, of every script and I I did notes for the script editor. Sometimes my notes were acted on, sometimes they weren't. But I always felt that I was part of the process and not just being shut out and having terrible things done to my work. So, so that, that, um, that connection, I think, made it, made, was one of the reasons why the series worked so well, because we always had those kind of touchstone points. That this, is, this, is, this is what we cannot do, this is how we must do it. Even on the stories that weren't based on your novels? Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, totally. And, I mean, Robson Green was absolutely committed to uh, his portrait of, of Tony Hill as well. I mean, sometimes Robson would just phone me up and say, you know, if Tony was going to wear a hat, what kind of hat would he wear? You know, or there'd be a particular script. He'd say, I'm not quite sure how to play this scene. How, how, how do you think Tony would react in this situation? And I'd say, well, you should talk to the director, really, because it's, you know, it's not my, my storyline. And he said, he said, no, but you know Tony better than anybody. So there was, there was always that sense with the, the team of wanting to make something that felt authentic, that felt of a piece. And I think that's what we ended up with. I think that it feels like the, the, the telly occupies the same fictional space, the same headspace as, as the books. 
I've got to say, you must—you were incredibly lucky in this regard. Yeah, I was very <laughs> lucky. I was very lucky. But I think if you look at adaptations that work mm-hmm. on on the small screen or the big screen, it's it's often when the writer of the book has actually been allowed into the process and not shut out, um, and then you end up with something that that that. You know, surely when people buy something to adapt, it's because they like it and because they actually want something that will reflect the thing that they've bought to adapt. It always bemuses me when people buy uh, an option and then go and make something that's completely different. Um, so why why did you bother buying the option in the first place? Why did you not just go and make something? It's, it's bizarre. Well, I think the, both you and Laurie uh, bring to the bring to the table a, a strong sense of story. And, and Laurie, I'm curious. Uh, Who's going to play Mary Russell, and when is that going to happen? <laughs> it is in the hands of the gods. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, this is something that they talk about regularly, and um, they, they had actually gone f- quite a far ways towards thinking about it substantially uh, when the British government suddenly decided it was out of money, and so they... <laughs> Yeah. withdrew a lot of support for the, the BBC. But, you know, it's one of those things that is a different world, and I, and I don't think any writer really can, <clears throat> can go any further with it than what they're doing, which is writing. Mm-hmm. Um, well, so long as you both keep uh, giving us great stories to read, uh, we'll be happy. That's, and because inevitably, to my mind, the books are... are are always the, the reading experience is much more substantial than the film going experience. Yeah, it takes always, longer. You invest well, in it more, it, and it gives you space for your imagination. Mm-hmm. For your, for t- you, you, you feel a much more intimate relationship with a book because you've given something of yourself into the pictures you've created in your head. Whereas you go to a, you go to a movie or TV, you're essentially being spoon fed with somebody else's imagination. And yeah, it's an enjoyable process. A good movie, a good TV series is, is you know fantastic way to spend your time but you're not invested in it in the same way it's not coming out of you uh, to, to, to make a sort of partnership with, with the writer to create the, the vision in your head it's always very sad when you see a, a good novelist get sucked into the Hollywood machine because they quite often stop writing I mean there's so much money in Hollywood mm. that when you start writing screenplays instead of writing novels um, it's very satisfying for your bottom line, but it doesn't leave a lot of novels behind. So, Well, we're much happier with the novels. <laughs> I've been speaking with Val McDermott and Laurie King. Val McDermott's new novel is The Retribution. Laurie King's latest novel is The Pirate King. She also has an anthology out with Leslie J. Klinger, A Study in Sherlock. Thank you for joining me, Val and Laurie. Thank pleasure. You. Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.